In this week's episode of Exit Point, we speak with Matt Gertis. In 2012, Matt founded Squirrel, a company that manufactures wingsuits, parachutes, and base jumping equipment. Among many other articles and publications, Matt wrote The Great Book of Base, which is arguably the most comprehensive piece of writing on the sport. We talked to Matt about his early days in base and how he's seen the sport develop, his process as a test pilot and manufacturer, what motivates him to improve the educational materials and develop new technology in base, and we also touch on why he's such a polarizing character within the community. Without further ado, let's get Matt on the track. Why don't we start from the beginning about like how you found out about base jumping and how you got involved with the sport? Yeah, it was a paper photo. <laughs> Somebody showed me a photo of Frank Gambali jumping through the steel at the Auburn Bridge. It was literally like a dog-eared, folded, you know, messy old photo that somebody was handing over. And it totally blew my mind. I couldn't believe that that was actually a thing, that you could jump from something wearing a parachute and live and that it was actually a sport. So the moment that I saw that, the moment that I realized it was a thing, I knew there was no real doubt in my head that that was something I wanted to do. So it's just a question of figuring out the time and the money to get to it. Why don't you tell us, where were you when, when you saw that picture? That was in Tahoe. I was working uh, at night tuning skis at Granite Chief in Squaw Valley. So it's kind of living the dream as a ski bum, skiing all day, clocking in at like 4 p.m., working till midnight, and then repeat. Yeah, wow. And I know that there's a lot of people that can really relate with the sort of reaction that you had to that image of base jumping. Did you feel like the call to it? Did it become an obsession to you right away of like, this is something I have to do? I knew that I had to do it. I didn't feel like giving up everything else I was doing the next day to get there. It was sort of like instantly on my list. Um, you know, I guess what cracks me up sometimes is when people, you know, they write to me as the author of the great book of base, or they talk to me in conversation and they say, you know, I'm not sure. I, I think I might want to do base jumping, but you know, uh, I'm just not sure about it. And you know, my answer, at least for a while in my head, I was you know trying to articulate this. And then somebody said it about art. And that is you should definitely not become a base jumper unless you feel like you really have to, unless you feel that you must right? Like that you have no other choice. That's the only good reason to do it. So if you're sort of hemming and hawing, then yeah, maybe take a pass. Um, but from the beginning, I felt like I had to do it. There was no doubt. Okay. So you're in the ski shop. You see this photo. Take us to when you started putting some action behind those thoughts. Yeah. So I kept skiing because really that was the single most important thing to me. And it's sort of what I imagined doing for the rest of my life. But um, skiing brought me to the Alps, to Austria, and that's where I discovered paragliding. And paragliding also kind of blew my mind. And in contrast to base jumping and skydiving, it was something that I could do right there and then. So, you know, that one spring, 22, 23 years ago, you seeing those little tiny specks of color orbiting around the sky, you know, way above big alpine peaks. I was just like, holy crap, that's insane. I can't believe that is also a sport. I, ha I have to do that. And so I made that happen relatively quick because it was, like I said, it was right there. And then that, you know, progressed pretty quickly. And a few years later, I was hanging out in the South of France with 
a friend of mine that I'd made through paragliding, Jimmy Hall. Jimmy Hall was um, North Shore Hawaii local, longtime waterman sort of guy who'd gotten into paragliding. I've got a question about compulsion. Uh, what is the dangerous aspect of not feeling compelled to do it? Oh, I don't think anything about not feeling compelled to base jumping is dangerous. I just think that, you know, if you're really not sure, then how could it be worth it? Because hmm. there are a lot of people that, you know, try and, I mean, they're casually getting into it. They're dipping their toe in the water. And um, like you just said, it, it doesn't feel right to me coming from a standpoint of like, I really just could not, you know, avoid it. I had to do it. And so when I hear that, I'm like, hmm, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of risk involved in this sport. You know, it might not be your thing right now until like you, you really get your, your head around, you know, I can't, I can't avoid this. I have to do it. Uh, I was just wondering if you had any like expansion on that thought of, um, you know, what might, uh, be our, you know, apprehension towards, uh, hearing that somebody just wants to kind of figure to feel it out. I don't think I wouldn't say that I'm apprehensive about anybody's decisions. You should do what feels right to you. But I think there's a difference between approaching something with caution and then not being convinced that it's for you. So this is really subjective and, you know, we could go around and around about this one point probably for an hour, but when somebody isn't sure they want to base jump, you know, I question whether or not it's such a good idea. If somebody's sort of dipping their toe in it, and convinced that it's something they want to do, at least for now, and they're taking it step by step, and they're having what you know could objectively be considered a cautious progression. I don't see anything wrong with that. Gotcha. So what was your initial progression into base jumping? So yeah, like I was saying, Jimmy Hall and I, we were paragliding in the south of France. We were training for this synchro acrobatic paragliding competition where two paraglider pilots launch, fly out over a lake, and do an acrobatic routine in sync. It's called the Red Bull Vertigo. For a few years, Red Bull Vertigo is like the the one, you know, big acro paragliding event in the world. And we were training for that. And he sort of casually mentioned while we were doing it one day that um, he was going to go base jump the north face of the Eiger. And I was like, wow, what the fuck? Really? You're going to base jump off of the Eiger? And I knew what the Eiger was from sort of a, you know, most of my life being obsessed with mountains and skiing and alpinism and stuff like that. And it never occurred to me that it would be a mountain you could base jump from. It sounded so extreme and exotic and wonderful. I was just like, dude, can I come? And he was like, yeah, sure. I just got to learn a base jump first. And this was in May and he was going in August, which didn't strike any of us as being problematic. And so like the next day I caught on, I was in a payphone booth, right? This is before I had a cell phone. I think cell phones obviously were around. I just couldn't afford one, especially not in Europe. And I start calling friends like, where can I learn to skydive? I'm in the South of France. Like what's good around here. And eventually someone told me I needed to go to Po. Po is in the you know Southwest of France, not too far from Bordeaux, if I remember correctly. Anyway, so I decided to go to Po, like, you know, find the address and start driving there. And then from the South of France, we were in St. Vincent Le Fort. I had to pass by Tillard and uh, I didn't know there was a drop zone there, but as I was driving by on the highway, 
sort of randomly looked over and all of a sudden there were these vertical banners, there were parachutes landing, there was an airport. And I was just like, holy shit, that looks a lot like skydiving. And I pulled in, walked into the drop zone and I was like, hey, uh, I would like to learn to skydive. And they're like, oh, well, you speak English. It's your lucky day. There's this guy, Kevin Hardwick, our resident English AFF instructor. And uh, I think, you know, 48 hours later, I completed AFF and had a handful of jumps and was like, sweet, now I can base jump. <laughs> for for the people that might not know um, how ironic that is, can you give us a little brief history about like where the, the legacy of wingsuiting and that drop zone is and like who are the people that, that were jumping there? Yeah. Yeah. So that is the home of Loic Jean-Albert, Stefan Zunino, and S-Fly Equipment. Um, also, Patrick de Gaillardon spent a lot of time there. It was, I wouldn't say the epicenter because there's probably no one epicenter in France, but definitely a central hub of French skydiving and also base jumping and and the culture surrounding it. Fred and Vince learned to jump there and trained there mainly. I think, you know, within the first year of me jumping there and hanging out there a few times, one of those guys told me after I asked them, they, they were so fancy, they were so experienced. You know, they had like these beautiful matching free fly suits. I was in awe of them. I was like, how many skydives do you guys have? And they're like, 9,000. I was just like, holy <laughs> crap. How could anybody have 9,000 skydives? You guys are insane. That's so cool. And uh, yeah, so that was, I, I got lucky. You know, I was just driving down the road and that's how I ended up at that DZ. I've, I've still never been to Poe. And um, so I did those first few jumps after my AFF. I think I had 11. And then through the same friends in Tahoe that had introduced me to that photo of Frank back in the day, I knew this guy, Greg Nevelo, who was incredibly kind and generous for whatever reason. I guess we just sort of, you know, liked each other. He was willing to drive me from Southern California all the way to the Prine Bridge when I was in, on the West Coast visiting family later that summer to teach me to base jump. So you know, 17 hour road trip and, uh, a few days at the bridge. So, yeah, I'm still super thankful for that. I think it, the official deal was that I was going to teach him to paraglide and he was going to teach me to base jump and that felt fair. But after a few paragliding flights, he was like, this is boring. (laughs) He never, he never went anywhere (laughs) with it. Can you speak a little bit about the, uh, crossover training? You know, nowadays, uh, it's pretty prescriptive, like, they say, get your 200 skydives and then you can base jump. And here you're coming with a ton of paragliding experience and 11 skydives total. Um, can you, you know, tell us a little bit about uh, that progression and uh, if, you know, looking back, would it, uh, would it be any different? Yeah. Well, Greg wasn't a complete idiot and he wasn't taking me base jumping because he wanted to see me get hurt or something with 11 skydives. He knew that I had, you know thousand hours or so flying paragliders and, you know, a decent amount of backcountry experience, skiing, climbing, mountaineering, stuff like that. So the cross training stuff pays off, but in my case, it mainly came down to being able to fly a canopy, right? Like when you're jumping from the bridge, what you mainly need to know is how not to crash your parachute and hurt yourself. So that part was really simple. Flying a seven cell parachute compared to flying a paraglider is really basic. So there was no issues there. You know, obviously the risky or idiotic, depending on how you look at it, part of my progression came after the bridge when I went back 
to gap to lard for a few more skydives, I think literally like 10 more. And when I walked out of the drop zone after that trip, this was in July or something. And uh, I guess late July. And they said, where are you off to? Like, what's next? I was like, oh, I'm going to ladder burning. And their jaws kind of dropped. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's where I found myself next. You, so you took off your student suit that had handles on your shoulders and thighs <laughs> and uh, said, you're going to go base jump the Iger basically how I think it went. they were, they were letting me jump in like shorts and a cotton ozone paragliders hoodie. If I remember correctly, <laughs> I remember like my belt buckle coming undone in free fall and like my thighs gleaming in the sunlight because they were normal length shorts and the leg straps were choking them up and all that stuff. Just a total non skydiving kook. Yeah. So, uh, did you leave the drop zone thinking like, Oh, I know how to track now. Or did you have like a realistic idea of how much you sucked or where were you in I, headspace wise in, in your own understanding of your, your own abilities? Total anosognosia, right? The, the incomprehension of how bad you are. I definitely had no idea how bad I sucked. I did know that I was able to jump out of an airplane and move across the ground because I'd put myself into sort of a tracking position. So I felt like I understood the basic mechanics of how to track and I was moving forward and, you know, maybe that would help. <laughs> so, um, yeah, obviously I didn't know anything and I relied heavily on luck for the first part for sure. So take us now to the train ride. Right. So you've done some skydive training, uh, you've done some training at the bridge. And, uh, so you're headed up on the train to, uh, yeah. 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 With Jimmy and gray, gray Fowler, this guy from Texas, who was one of the most experienced base jumpers at that time back then, I guess 20 years ago. And gray was, I have to say, a really awesome mentor. He took really good care of Jimmy and I. Jimmy was a couple seasons ahead of me. He was doing his first wingsuit base jumps on this trip. And I was doing my first real base jumps. And I have to say that, man, he was really an awesome dude. I was super lucky with the people that I was able to learn from and be mentored by the first couple of years. So wrongly or rightly, I felt pretty good about having Gray and Jimmy sort of holding my hands, so to speak, right? And Yellow Ocean was my first cliff. And I remember, you know, on the exit point, I think in a previous conversation, you guys were like, you know, what do you remember about that first jump? And what I mainly remember was feeling like my pants were too tight because I had like these Mammut soft shell mountaineering pants on and like my Hanwag paragliding boots and probably like, uh, actually not probably, I think I know because I, I recently looked at the photos. I had like a big three-layer Gore-Tex jacket on. So I was definitely upside down in terms of like, the where the drag is supposed to be on your body for forward movement. And that was scary for sure. Feeling like my pants are too tight, but, um, yeah, it totally worked just for some reason, every jump, I had a little bit of forward movement and an on heading opening and just kept working. What made those guys such great mentors? You mentioned that they were awesome mentors. What specifically, what was the, what were the, um, aspects that made them great? I don't think I recognize it or could have articulated it back then, but now the things that I think make a good mentor were probably very present in them. And the first of those is not being dogmatic about anything, right? Like 
at no point was Gray ever like, if you don't fold your reductions like this, you're going to die. You know, if you don't do your primary stow like this, it's all over for you. He was very open-minded and very chill and sort of transmitted a relaxed point of view to me, I think. And he was also very thorough, you know, like gear checks, packing, all of his oversight was just calmly deliberate and thorough. And I don't think that that was even a conscious effort on his part. I think it just came naturally to him. And I was lucky to have connected with him through Jimmy. Do you think we've lost a little bit about of that open-mindedness as uh, the sport uh, trends towards facilitation and people um, don't really seek out the fundamental understanding of, of the things that we're doing? I don't know. I mean, what is the fundamental understanding of, of base? I, I don't I know, that, but like I just see fewer people actually trying to understand. I mean, we've got people like Will Mitchell and uh, other folks that are, you know, going out there and trying to answer questions. But um, uh, most well, of as soon the as time, you said Will Mitchell, then now I understand what you mean, yeah. because Will Will is exactly the type of base jumper that I wish we had more of. He doesn't just accept, you know, conventional wisdom about the sport. He's deeply analytical and he looks at it from a really objective point of view, right? Like Will is a customer of squirrel and somebody that we've helped with discounts and stuff like that. But I know from past experience with him and from getting to know him a little better that he would never hesitate to call us out on bullshit. And he would never hesitate to say, you're wrong about that. Or I think this, you know, this thing could be much better. So I really like the way that he tries to get to the bottom of things malfunctions, wingsuit base technique, all that stuff. And he looks at it from, you know, almost like, yeah, from a really emotionally detached perspective. So, yeah, I wish that more people were trying to get to the bottom of the sport, like you say. Yeah. What you mentioned about like solid mentorship, I I think uh, I'm noticing less and less of it over the years. More I hear people say, well, I'm doing it this way because so-and-so told me to do it this way rather than, well, I think this is the best method for doing so. Um, And I think that might be a function of um, so many people getting the sport and so few mentors being able to spend the quality time that yours spent with you. And so they end up being a little more dogmatic and a little more, um, you know, instructor oriented versus education and knowledge oriented. Yeah. It's been trending that way every year since, since I got into the sport and I don't know what the real causes are or what the answers are, but I definitely do see a mix of, you know, quality of mentorship out there and also quality of instruction. And I don't think that it's hopeless or across the board shitty. I think that there's still a lot of really good instructors and quality mentors out there. And, you know, it's mostly luck who exposes you to the sport, who is near you and convenient to you when you start to begin your progression um, yeah, some people get unlucky. A key feature that I picked up from what you're saying and describing him as a good mentor is that he was able to re- relay information without projecting fear onto you. And we talked a little bit about this with Brock and some of the observations that he had with, uh, other people that were learning how to base jump with other instructors and or friends. And this wasn't necessarily a, like a, a criticism, but he did notice that there were some instructors that had a lot of fear and 
they, I mean, you can see that I'm sure as a parent too, like when they do something that scares you, you can lash out with like, Hey, don't do that. You know, or, or, you know, when you come correct and you just explain calmly and, and, uh, even minded about the actual facts rather than acting emotionally. I mean, that's just a difficult thing to do, but it is, could be the difference between being a good instructor in this situation and not. Yeah. I think that's a really good example of, you know, really good or less good. And you could, I mean, you can, how to, how to give examples without, you know, being too critical, let's say, first of all, the instructor who is able to teach their students about humility is probably going to be at the top of my list, right? Somebody who imparts a sense of always learning, always ready to change our minds, always willing to enjoy the process of being a beginner. I feel like those students always come away from their courses with a better mindset and they're able to exercise better judgment. And in the end, judgment is the only thing that can keep you alive in base jumping. It's not knowledge or skill, it's judgment. And contrary to that, there's courses where students graduate feeling like they know everything because their instructor makes them think that he's teaching them everything and that he knows everything. And, you know, in our previous conversation, we touched on how it doesn't matter how good or bad your instructor is as a student, you're going to idolize them. They're giving you one of the most intense and wonderful experiences of your entire life. You know, they're shepherding you on this journey to base jump and base jumping is for pretty much everybody apart from like witnessing the birth of their child, probably one of the most intense things that you can go through. And so your base instructor sort of stamps your prefrontal cortex with their dick and like you end up sort of, <laughs> you know, stuck on them for a while at least. It takes a long time for that effect to wear off in, in my opinion. So good or bad, you're going to recommend your instructor to your friends because you don't know if they sucked and you don't know if they're good. All you know is that that was an incredible experience. I loved it. They were amazing. And I'm a base jumper now. So you should definitely take their course. So, you know, it's, it's not even like giving a good base jumping course will result in a disproportionate amount of growth for your school because people are going to recommend you no matter what. So yeah, we've been fortunate enough to divert people to certain schools over the past few years. And that's one thing that I'm thankful for. I'm glad to be able to recommend the instructors that I believe in. Can you go back through some advice that you gave me way back in the day before I was really a base jumper? Um, you know, we, we met in a climbing gym and I was friends with your brother and, uh, I asked you like, what, what some solid advice you could give, you know, an up and coming jumper would be. And, uh, you said something to the tune of, you need to protect yourself because nobody in this sport is going to, uh, value your life and limb appropriately since they've been so desensitized to it, having seen so much go wrong. Can you kind of uh, expand on that thought and s tell me if that's still the case today? Yeah. And when we're talking about this sort of on a compressed timeline, right? Like a few minutes ago, we were talking about my own idiotic progression and going to base jumping with 11 skydives and going to Lauterbrunnen with 20 skydives or something like that. You know, fast forward a few years. And I think when we had that conversation, Matt, 
I don't, I'd been in the sport for at least five or six years. I don't remember exactly, but you know, it was a while later and, you know, I'd lost a couple of good friends. I'd witnessed fatalities and injuries and jumped in a few places. And so I think by then I had the perspective that it's really a solo sport and nobody can save you. Right. Even though I felt comfort at or from having such a good mentor and I felt like I was in really good hands, it's easy to forget that once you jump, <laughs> nobody's coming to your aid. Right. So, you have to go into things with your instructor knowing that not only can they not really save your life when it comes down to it, apart from somehow catching something before you jump, you know, some mistake you've already made, not a mistake you're about to do on the jump, but some error you've already committed. But they have seen a million injuries. They have seen quite a few deaths and they are pretty much by necessity somewhat inured to it. So, they're not too worried about you femuring because you're just another base jumper that femured. And they're not even that worried about you, worried about you going in because they've seen that a bunch too. What does that mean for you? And if you're paying them, what does that mean to your relationship? And Matt, if I remember correctly, I think that you were like, hey, you know, I just finished my bridge course and I'm, I'm off to Moab with my base instructor with a handful of jumps. And I was like, well, you know, awesome. But don't make the mistake of thinking that Moab's any less dangerous because you're going there with your instructor. It's still a pretty radical place, especially for somebody with just a handful of bridge jumps. Yeah. So, you know, I think that a lot of people get a false sense of security from being somewhere, going places with the person that taught them to base jump. Yeah. And more and more I see, uh, after, you know, people go through intense loss, uh, year and year out that, you know, they reconcile the loss by minimizing it. And all of a sudden, you know, they take on that point break two perspective where, you know, one of their friends goes in in front of them and they're just like, well, that was his line, man. No problem. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. How do you, how do you keep watching your friends die and also keep base jumping? Yeah, good it's... point. Let's get onto that. Um, how, uh, how far did your mentors take you and when did they stop mentoring you? Well, I did uh, that first summer season with Gray and Jimmy and Lauterbrunnen and then was living in the south of France after that, jumping in the Gorge du Verdon and some other places and mainly on my own. Um, my mentorship lasted for, I would say, a few weeks that first summer. And then uh, I was kind of floating around and meeting you know, other more experienced jumpers in other places, but it didn't take very long back then to be an experienced jumper, you know, like it, if you had a hundred cliff jumps, you were not a complete idiot. So, you know, within, within a year, I had a decent amount of slider up cliff experience and it kind of just went solo from there. When, can we rewind just a little bit? I, you were saying that Jimmy was on his first season of a wingsuiting. Did you, you remember looking at him and in, in a wingsuit and going like, I can't wait to get there. Or was that in your mind? Did you say like, Oh, that's my objective is to jump off cliffs with wingsuits or no. how was, how, what was your feeling on that? Yeah, it was still so fringe. Like back then there was really just a handful of wingsuit base jumpers anyways. And I, I, it didn't really occur to me that it was something I wanted to do at all or even soon. I knew mainly like that I needed to skydive a lot more it was pretty obvious that that was something that you needed to learn in the skydiving environment. And I didn't even like skydiving back then. It was too expensive. It was always far away. 
It involved being crammed in an airplane. I liked walking, climbing, being in the mountains, and jumping off of cliffs. I wasn't really into the skydive scene. And it's hard to get into the skydiving scene when you're a beginner anyways, right? Like nobody's nice to you at the drop zone. Nobody treats you with respect. And it's hard to get through that phase. And I didn't want skydiving enough to put myself through it. So to me, wingsuiting was like this far off, distant thing. And it, it took a few years before I realized that it was pretty freaking cool and something I wanted to do. Do you think there's something about skydiving or skydivers that uh, trend towards this, you know, clicky kind of non-inviting, uh, uh, exclusive community? No, I think it's just humans being humans. I think that um, in any subculture, or society, or community, there's always going to be a hierarchy. There's always going to be a pecking order. New people will always be less interesting in many ways than, you know, more people who have a, a stronger part in the community. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing or that something that even that we could change, right? Because it just, it's human nature. And I think the skydivers, a lot of the time, it's, it's honest, right? I don't really, now that I'm more experienced, it's hard for me to hold all of us at fault for this because what do we really care about, right? Like at the drop zone, we care about going skydiving and having fun jumps and you're going to have the funnest jumps with the people that have the most experience. So you're not really looking to jump with the new jumpers on the DZ. And so you're not really looking to make friends with them. You're more likely to invest your time and energy hanging out with somebody who has as much or more experience than you, because that's just more fun. And we're doing this to have fun. So, you know, me feeling left out or, you know, not sufficiently respected as a person with 25 skydives on the drop zone. You know, at the time I didn't fully understand it, but you know, that's nothing to take personally. I think, uh, it took me, uh, a little while to not take it personally. And, uh, the aspect that I was missing was how expensive it was. You know, I came from climbing world, uh, where, you know, the runs on the route, uh, cost nothing. And so why would it, like, why would it uh, not be the case where, you know, a more experienced person is helping out a, a new person? Like, it's it's everyone just having fun. But, you know, eventually when you're like, oh, the, you know, these people are committing thousands of dollars, you know, a month to this thing. And it is incredibly costly to uh, take a new jumper on a, on a jump that you don't know if it's going to work out. And I was like, okay, that, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, it's not yeah, it's not something to take personally or hold people at fault for or to resent them for or anything. If they're there on the weekend, they're only gonna be able to make ten jumps anyways, and those ten jumps, you know, represent a significant amount of their monthly discretionary income. Yeah, I don't blame them at all for, you know, not wanting to reach out to the hunter jump wonder. You know, it's awesome when people do. It's very generous, but I don't think it's anything that we should expect necessarily. Well, back to your mentorship and the people that did bring you along, you took us to where, uh, you know, you, they, you know, you took us along the pathway, um, that they trod for you, but you didn't, uh, tell us when they stopped mentoring you. And I know that that's uh, kind of a story I want to delve into. Can you, uh, leave, can you, you know, fill us in? No, nobody really stopped mentoring me. It's just, you know, completely coincidental, right? Like I was living in France working in the paragliding industry and all my friends are from the US. So that first summer they came over, we met up in Lauterbrunn and, you know, we did 60 or 70 jumps over the course of five, six weeks. And, you know, then they left, they went home and I stayed in France. So it was more a question of just circumstance who was around 
in the places that I was jumping. I was living not too far from the Gorge de Verdon, so by chance, by going there on weekends, by hanging out in La Palude sur Verdon, this little village on the edge of the gorge, you know, I met other people to jump with, mostly from the French community. Am I mistaken? Did did your mentors not go in? Well, Jimmy Hall certainly went in. Gray quit. Um, right. So like that's that's kind of what I want to delve into. Like what was uh what was that like? What happened? You know, you eventually lose a mentor uh that goes in and one that quits the game, which are two things that um I think are kind of landmarks for most people in the sport, either losing a mentor or having somebody quit. And I'm kind of curious how you dealt with both of those. Yeah. Um, at the time, it felt like I dealt with it very well. You know, I think this is something that we also, we've touched on before is that feeling of like, oh, one of my best friends just went in right in front of me. And although I'm very sad and that was painful, it seems like I'm okay. I must be special. I must be good at this. And I think we all kind of feel like that. You know, we feel the pain, we feel the loss the tragedy is really like intense, but at the same time we come out the other side of it not long after feeling like I still can go base jumping. I still feel like jumping. I still feel like me and the actual trauma, whatever it is, which I still don't fully understand is much deeper and it takes a long time to figure out and deal with. So Jimmy went in, I watched it happen, was filming him. We were on Baffin Island and it sucked. It was really bad. It was definitely one of the worst days of my life. And then just a few weeks later, another good friend who was much more experienced than me and somebody that I respected a lot, Stefan Oberlander, went in in front of us. We loaded him onto the heli as he was dying of internal bleeding. And I had to go through the whole call his fiance thing, which again was awful. But like most jumpers, I know I kept going and I felt like, I can deal with, with death. And I think we don't understand how much it affects us. You know, I'm still coming to terms with how much I've been affected by losing so many friends. And I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't have any answers here. All I know is that I think that most people don't give it enough importance. And I wish that I could help people who I see going through it, understand that it's a little worse than they think <laughs> in not necessarily a bad way, but I just, I wish people would take it a little more seriously and, and, uh, give more importance to the, the grieving process. What should we call it? Yeah, it's that's heavy. definitely it's really accurate. Heavy. You know, I think we've all, I know we've all been there and we all sort of handle it in a, in a different sort of fashion. I know, I totally agree with you that thinking like, oh, this is fine. You know, like I was a paramedic and a firefighter. I've seen horrific shit on the job. Seeing death in front of me is nothing new. I've got this. No problem. And uh, let's go on and do the next jump. I mean, I remember being at the Bravant uh, with Charlie Kurlinkis and watching someone go in, hear the, the their body smack against the rocks. And my answer to that situation was, I didn't really know that guy that well. I don't want to be here right now. I know another jump that's good right now. Let's go. Zero time spent processing that trauma. And uh, I, I'd like to ask you, like you're saying, you're just coming to terms with it now. 
can you share with us a little bit of like your personal awareness on, on how that's manifesting? Like, what are the signs that you're seeing right now thinking like, shit, I've, this has changed my personality or this is the way I re- react in this situation because of that. What are, what are some of these signs and symptoms that you're experiencing? I think it's really hard to give an accurate self-assessment at any point in our lives. But as we age, you know, there's like scientific facts about how our bodies change and how that affects our minds and our mindset, right? So I don't know how much of it is aging. I don't know how much of it is trying to be a little bit more self-aware and reflective. Um, And I don't think I'm just coming to terms with it now. What I meant was that I'm still coming to terms with it, right? I'm still reflecting on how losing so many close friends when I did has affected me. And I don't know. I don't have the answers. All I know is that it seems to be a bigger deal than I gave it credit for at the time. And I feel like when I observe other people going through it, it could be true of other people as well. Like most things, you know, none of us are that special. We all are humans experiencing similar things. Hmm. Well, let's move on to uh, another mentor quitting the sport. How did that uh, affect you? If at all? Well, I mean, I don't, you know, gray, not coming back to Europe, you know, after a couple seasons, I don't think affected me. I, I think I would have, I know I would have loved to continue jumping with him because he was just awesome, awesome dude. And I missed him a lot. Um, but I didn't feel abandoned, at least not consciously. <laughs> and I had by that point met plenty of other people to jump with people that were, you know, fun and experienced and had great knowledge of local objects. And I think for those first few years, you know, at least before Jimmy died, I was in this constant sense of wonder about, how many jumps were out there, how amazing they were, how beautiful the Alps were, um, and what an incredible sport it was. Like, really, it's, you know, nobody that's listening to this needs to hear me tell them how amazing it really is, especially in the mountains. It was incredible. It was a dream time for sure, those first few years. Well, actually, I think we would like to hear it because actually there's a lot of people that don't jump listening to this, surprisingly. And I think that the magic that comes with the sport is uh, something that we'd we'd like to hear what you think. I mean, tell us a little bit about your first experiences and the elation of, and the absolute amazing experience. Tell us. Yeah. I mean, the magic and the fun is the whole point, right? Like it's the only reason we do this is because it's fun and it's not just a little fun. And especially in the Alps. I mean, back then there weren't that many Alpine cliffs that were legal and open in the U S it was a much smaller scene here and everybody went to Europe to get their shit done. And I was lucky enough to live there. And I don't know, how do you describe walking through the forest and breaking through tree line and being in those, you know, Alpine grassy fields above tree line and then getting to the talus and then continuing up this face on a sunny day in early summer when there's still snow on the high peaks and the valleys are lush and green, right? You guys know what that's like, but it's difficult to describe. I think it's sort of inherently ineffable, right? Like that Alpine experience. And then to top it off, unbelievably, you get to jump off of this massive cliff and fly your body down to the valley. I mean, when people ask me what it's like to fly a wingsuit or, I tell them that it's a lot like what it's like to dream of flying. I think, you know, when you're dreaming of flying headfirst 
through the air, turning and maneuvering yourself and feeling the wind and feeling the speed. It's incredible. It's a lot like the dream. And being able to practice that dream in the Alps was fucking amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I, I kind of describe it as waking up into a dream where you now are living in an oil painting. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, walking into these scenes in Europe are, are like unreal. You know, like I only thought they existed in movies where they, like they manicured the uh, all the conditions and lighting and, and such to give you this like unreal picture. But turns out it's like exactly that. Yeah, it is insane. The, the access, the beauty, the height, you know, the vertical relief that you get. Um, it's like nowhere else for sure. You know, there's a lot of mountains on earth, but there's definitely nothing. There's no other mountain ranges like the Alps in terms of ease of access, convenience, beauty, consistency of weather for a few months a year. All that stuff is just incredible. Yeah, I totally, I know. Uh, like uh, I uh, quit my life. <laughs> I found yeah, you did. wingsuit base jumping <laughs> in the Alps and quit my life to to live it full time. So I know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I remember like when you else. showed up, I was like, this guy's making the right decision. <laughs> <laughs> he even speaks French. <laughs> yeah. So like Blank was just mentioning, uh, why don't we uh, talk a little bit about your uh, beginnings of wingsuit base? Yeah. Well, so back to that same drop zone in the south of France, Gap Tallard. I was fortunate enough to hang out with this woman, Wendy Smith, who's a legendary um, skydiver from the 90s and 2000s and to present day. But I mean, she was in Crosswind. If you haven't seen the movie Crosswind, go find it. Awesome, seminal, totally rad. She was good friends with Patrick de Gaillardon and a lot of other mythical French figures in the base and skydiving scene. And she helped me to skydive a little bit because I sucked. I mean, I still suck. I'm still a terrible skydiver, really. But, you know, back then I had virtually no experience. And uh, she helped me to get to the point where I could put the wingsuit on and then fly it a little bit. And then, uh, yeah, I sort of snuck off to Brento and made it happen. Hmm. Snuck off so you didn't tell anybody? You were... Uh... They knew you knew you weren't ready, but wanted to do it anyway. Is that that's kind of what that implies for me? Yeah, I felt like it was my problem. <laughs> <laughs> I was I wasn't going to make it anybody else's problem. An S flight expert. S flight expert. Okay. And uh, where did you take it from there? So S flight expert off of Brento to what? Everywhere, all over the Alps. Um, you know, Latterbrun in a ton. That was just such an easy and convenient place to get 50 jumps in a week. Um, so yeah, I found myself there quite a bit, but then, you know, I was still living in France and there was quite a bit to do around there. So basically everywhere West of Austria. And when did it, uh, like strike you to move from, you know, wingsuit, you know, athlete to wingsuit manufacturer? I took a while, I think, I mean, at least it felt like a while, but one of the major breakthroughs, for me was, you know, trading that S fly expert out for a Tony suit. And, uh, I was popping back to the U S pretty regularly during those years, just cause you know, family and friends and no reason to stay in Europe all the time. And I was jumping at Lodi at one point and, um, God, what was Brian's nickname? I still can't remember. Dang it. 
I won't be able to. I don't think I could search. We'll have to dub in his name, Brian X Y Z. Yeah, Brian fill in the blank. Um, He had a Tony suit. It was this big mattressy giant thing that did not look that rad to me on the ground at all. It was nothing really sleek about it. But then when we flew together, we weren't flying together because he was just completely fucking smoking me. He was gone, you know. And I think by that time I had a pro fly, you know. I'd, I'd asked Stefan. Zunino, Zun, you know, what I should get after the expert. He's like, oh, you take the ProFly next. It's obvious. And so I got that and it was a little bigger and a little better. And I felt like I was flying it pretty well, at least compared to, you know, anybody else in any other suit at that time until I skydived with this dude, Brian, in his Tony suit. And I was just completely just blown away by how much more glide he had. And then on the ground, I was watching him land under his parachute. Again, this is skydiving at Lodi and he hadn't unzipped his arms. And I was just like, what the He's, he grabbed his brakes without unzipping, and that was a major issue because back then, all other suits, you had to cut away or unzip, which in the base environment, especially back then, felt like a big deal. So I was pretty impressed. And that day, you know, I printed the PDF order form and faxed it to Florida and got that process started. And since they basically weren't selling any, it only took a couple weeks to get mine. And, uh, yeah, that was revelatory for me. The, my, the first few base jumps on that bigger, better, higher performance suit totally just amplified my addiction. And it's all I wanted to do. It was all I wanted to do from that point forward. I was just completely obsessed. Um, you know, I kept ordering bigger and bigger suits and working with Tony to, you know, get designs that were more appropriate for base jumping. Can you and, talk to us about Tony Urgallo and uh, Jeff Nebelkoff? I've heard you mention that they were kind of geniuses of their age and their company made the most significant leap forward in wingsuit technology. Yeah, I still think that. I still think that if you look at the 25-year history of wingsuits right now, right from the late 90s to present day, the biggest, most significant step forward in wingsuit performance was when Tony came out with you know, the X series or whatever. And Jeff Nebelkoff was a huge part of that. Those guys were by far like, yeah, they had the biggest impact on the sport, at least in my opinion. So what were some of the changes from uh, the profile that you were doing, you know, to the expert, um, which uh, you, you say is like one of the landmarks? Yes, mainly surface area, right? Like they had figured out how to make a much bigger suit relatively comfortable to fly um, which was unique to them and not only that with a bottom of container pilot shoot location right because most of the other all the other advanced suits quote-unquote advanced suits at that time used a lake pouch which it took us a while to figure out was not such a good idea Um, so bigger suit boc pilot shoot placement low stall speed fast start good glide performance all those things just crushed on everything else on the market by a lot. Um, and you know who exactly was responsible for what exact part of the suit? I'm still not sure, but Jeff Nebelkoff was a really creative and awesome pilot, um, artist, more than engineer, and just generally kind of a brilliant skydiver. So, you know, he was he was a big part of it for sure. And then obviously Tony was a big part of it. I don't know. 
exactly how that would break down, but those guys were both amazing. They made an amazing suit. And, uh, you know, there's a period of three or four years in there where I was just so stoked, so completely stoked to have experienced that leap forward in performance. Um, it was, it felt like a special time. I remember back in those days looking to you as like the reference for short starts. And uh, do you remember like how you like cultivated a, a short star or who you were looking up to or where the tips that you got from that, that sort of helped you to understand how to develop a, a fast start? Oh, Cause you question. said the I'm suit really was sure. yeah, the suit sort of just allowed you to do it. But I think that you actually put a lot of intention into it. You, you don't remember? Or... I, it was personal experience. Honestly, I don't remember like, looking to others to try and figure that out. And, you know, honestly, I can't think of anybody. It was myself and Dean and Andy West all started base jumping Tony suits at the same time. The only person that really did it before us was Jade Tatum, who was a Florida kid. Yeah, I remember Jade. Flash in the pan, base jumper. Um, great skydiver, great wingsuit base jumper. And he was a season ahead of us. Like he came back from Norway and was just like, you know, when I ordered my first Tony suit, he was like, these things are the best. And I was like, cool. I mean, we'll see. I'll try it and we'll see. And he was right. Um, so Dean and Andy and myself all like within the, within a couple of weeks and Dean and myself on the same day in Lauterbrunnen started base jumping Tony suits. Um, and as far as the short start thing goes, there was... I mean, Dean and Andy were awesome and they were working on it, but I think I put a little bit more intention into it. And I was the only person that was living there full time. Like they're popping over and back from the U S so yeah, I don't know. I, I just felt like that part of it was important, you know, because obviously it would open up what we could jump, but also what I was more obsessed with than short start terrain was long glides because the faster you get flying, the further you go. So that was kind of more the angle that I was coming at it from. My dream back then was to fly as far as you could from everything. Can you uh, talk to us a little bit more about Jeff Nebelkoff, uh, just to give us a, a brief like kind of characterization, because I feel like he's a person in our community that never got uh, a real due since he was behind the scenes of Tony suits and all of the stuff that he did in the sport was mostly filming others. And so he never really showed up. And then he went in skydiving before, many of our generation really could, you know, understand his accomplishment and contribution. Yeah, I would say he definitely didn't get the recognition that he fully deserved. And part of that was intentional on his part. I think he was pretty happy to to be more background. And part of it was the fact that he never really got into social media. You know, he didn't give a shit about Facebook, you know, YouTube back then. And didn't spend much time on the forums at all. I, don't, I, I can't remember if he ever posted on the forum, honestly, which was, you know, base jumpers and wingsuit pilots, original internet, original social media. But he was definitely well-known and well-respected at Skydive New England when he was there for the summers and, you know, Z Hills in Florida when he was down there for the wintertime. But yeah, I wish that he did get a little more recognition and credit still because he was definitely brilliant and he was so good. He, I think I had probably 150 skydives when he had 4,000 skydives in a wingsuit, you know, not including all his other skydives. So yeah, pioneer, early expert. I know you have kind of a love hate relationship with the uh, social media and, uh, you know, the internet. Um, can you, uh, fill us in on your, 
personal philosophies, opinions on, you know, its usage. I know that you you've used it to great effect, and you've also um, hated it with uh, <laughs> with yeah, incredible I mean, like fervor. Anything powerful, it's uh, it's good and bad at the same time. I can see low wincing. Low, did you want to talk about something else? Yeah, I think that. W- we should talk about the creation of Squirrel and how Jeff Nebelkoff came in, in a part of that. And the whole social media thing can be a, a giant tangent later. Okay. Um, so why don't you take us through like, uh, so you were jumping Tony suits and you saw there was room for improvement. I think you were a little bit frustrated with the development. And I think you had your own di- ideas on, on, on how things could be designed and, uh, why don't you take us through the beginning steps of, of how you, you know, split away and, uh, or if you could even call it that and, and started designing your own suit. Yeah. So after a couple of years of flying Tony suits and getting more into terrain flying and jumping more stuff and also becoming more obsessed with it in general, you know, myself and a couple others saw that there were some issues we had with the suit inconsistent pressurization, inlets that would sort of function or not function, not randomly, but not as consistently as we wanted to. And we weren't really getting anywhere with like getting our feedback heard or making changes. And it was just the nature of the people at Tony Suits. They're busy and distracted and had their own ideas and were deeply creative themselves. And I don't fault them for any of that. But it got to the point around 2011 where I was kind of, you know, I'd become a little bit scared of my suit and I was sort of thinking to myself, you know, do I want to keep jumping this knowing that it kind of does some random shit that's not very good or do I want to quit? And I decided through conversations with Dave Barlia and Jeff Nebelkopf and also Taya Weiss that it might be a better idea to make our own wingsuit. So the four of us, Jeff, Taya, Matt, and Dave, kind of came up with this concept of Squirrel. Um, and that was the the earliest sort of discussion that happened. And then over the course of that year, you know, Jeff, I, I mean, I wouldn't say flaked out, but, you know, became distracted with other things. And Taya, same. And that left Dave and I, Dave Barley and myself. And uh, yeah, that's, we kind of, started the first iteration of the company. And then it wasn't long after that when Dave Barlia, you know, sort of, well, the way he put it to me was I'm a 47 year old guy with a two year old kid and I don't really have time for this, which I totally understood and respected. I didn't respect it as much as I should have, but I definitely totally understood, which left me. And that's when I brought in Mike Steen and, you know, it never would have been a real company if it hadn't been for Mike, right? Because, I had the idea of a suit and the ability to make it in the ozone paragliders factory, but zero motivation whatsoever to create an operation, right? Which is sort of the, like that, the structure of the company and the operation is what makes everything possible. So that was when it shit got real basically. And, uh, in 2012, we were actually able to turn it into a company instead of just an idea and a few prototypes. I've heard you uh, speak about in the past that like, you know, creating a company was almost on accident. Like you started out just by wanting to improve suits and, you know, then several people approached you like, oh, that's a cool suit. And then eventually 
uh, the idea ballooned into, all right, we're going to have to scale this thing systematically. Yeah. For the first couple of years, it was the only intent was to make one wingsuit and, you know, just have it be a side project. Um, we started with the Kaluga, which was aimed at myself, experienced wingsuit base jumpers and my friends, other experienced wingsuit base jumpers, basically. So there were no plans to make equipment for base jumping or beginner wingsuits or anything like that. We really just wanted to make the suit that we wanted to fly. Right. And man, that lots of in hindsight, obvious problems with that plan and lots of in hindsight, you know, obvious reasons why it grew bigger than that. But at the time it was, like I said, just a side project to make this one suit that we could use to wingsuit base jump because that's what we needed. And so the company really existed at the beginning to be able to take an order, make a product and ship it to a customer. You know, those things are not as simple as you would think. You actually have to build quite a bit of infrastructure to do that in an organized fashion, unless you want the process to be a shitty experience for everybody involved. <laughs> so, you know, the company at first was just one wingsuit and that was enough for us. Um, but yeah, then it grew, it grew way faster than we expected for sure. We were not you ready know, for you, it. You, you brushed over really lightly there, your connection with ozone. And I think uh, for people that don't know about ozone paragliders, I, I think it's been fairly integral in uh, an inspiration for you as well of, of, of how your company should run and the R&D process. And can you, can you tell us a little bit, like, for example, like uh, Fred and Luke and, and Russell Ogden, like they've designed one of the most winningest paragliders of all time, like right, the Enzo. And I think that that was a big inspiration for you. Can you tell us a little bit more about your relationship with them and maybe how they helped you at the beginning stages and, and, and where your relationship is now? Yeah, I started working for Ozone in 2004, right around, or not long after I started base jumping. And um, I've, I, I'm still you know with them essentially. Um, and it's a really special company that has become by far the most successful paragliding company in the world, right? They're twice as big as second place company and you know, no other brand comes close as far as competition results and performance in pretty much every category of glider. Um, you know, I, you could keep talking on and on about how like ozone hasn't really just dominated the sport, but they've kind of broken it with the amount of innovation they've come out with over the past 15 years. So, um, yeah, I, I feel really lucky to have been able to work with them for so long and especially lucky to be able to share a production facility with them. It was the main reason that we were able to start Squirrel is access to Ozone's manufacturing. Um, and it's a really special place where all of our stuff is made. If you think about you know, the Enzo paraglider that you just mentioned, it's got 100 cells across the span, right? So if each one of those cells is only off by one millimeter in the end you have a 10 centimeter mistake on the glider right so you can't even say that one millimeter of precision is enough it can't be plus or minus one millimeter it has to be better than that which is insane to do that so precisely to so so well is really not a small thing and the people behind those designs were also very interested by the initial concept of our company and you know everybody is sort of taken by the idea of wingsuits. They're romantic and fascinating and wonderful. And so they were like more than happy to help me out with 
you know, developing the CAD software that we needed to create the suits and integrating patterns and production and all that stuff, which is, which is a big deal. I mean, that's a huge part of making a company work is figuring out how to turn customer measurements into customer patterns and prototypes into scaled products and all that stuff. So yeah, my relationship with ozone was probably the single most important thing. I mean, there's no one thing, but yeah, it could be right at the top of the list. Well, I mentioned earlier that they have the winningest paraglider and that strikes me because you share a uh, facility with them and now you have the winningest uh, wingsuit. And I'm curious beyond precision, if there are any company philosophies that you took from them in order to be so successful in that realm. I don't know if it's a company philosophy to want to win. It's more of like a human thing, probably, right? So I'm just letting this noise pass along. But yeah, there, I mean, Ozone put a huge amount of effort into creating higher performance gliders because it's hard to argue with competition success, right? Um, especially over many competitions and many people and a long period of time. So in the beginning part of our if squirrel's history, there were no competitions really apart from the occasional tiny base race that we cared about or that were even out there, right? Like it was, we just wanted to make the Kalugo, then maybe the Aura just to wingsuit base jump just for us and our friends. And it, actually it wasn't until ACES, the original ACES event in 2014, that we thought about making a suit that was sort of purpose built for speed and glide. It was more about start performance and handling down a steep mountain line and uh, having an easy access to your pilot chute and good deployment characteristics, right? Like those were the basic tenets of our early designs. It had to start well, fly well on a terrain flying line, and then be able to get your parachute out with a minimum of complications. A lot of those things are in conflict with going fast at a high glide ratio. So in the lead up to the ACEs, which we only got involved in because by this time we'd moved the company to Seattle and we'd started jumping at Kapowson, which is where Andy Farrington's based. And Andy kind of opened my mind to skydiving. I'd never really cared that much about it until I moved here and started jumping at that drop zone and saw what he could do. You know, like the first few skydives I did with him, he literally flew circles around me, right? <laughs> Like I thought I was a decent wingsuit pilot. You know, I'd been a base jumper for a while. I'd been I'd done a lot of terrain flying and I felt like I had a, a pretty good mastery of the suit. And he just was so much better than me. And I was like, whoa, that's that's interesting. <laughs> what is what does it mean? And so we were really impressed by him and um, impressed also by what could be accomplished in the skydive environment. And our focus shifted from base jumping to kind of everything. And in the lead up to the aces, we really wanted Andy to have a suit that he could win with. So we sort of doubled down, doubling down isn't even accurate. We just became so completely obsessed with trying to make our stuff better. And uh, yeah, it worked. I think this might be a, a good place to segue into your, your R and D and uh, how you, you know, without dispelling any trade secrets, how, what, what does your R and D process look like? It's so everything starts from somewhere, right? Like the, or the very first suit we made formed the foundation for the next suit we made and so on. And so 
there are obviously some cases where we start totally from scratch, but you can't ignore everything else you've done, right? Everything's an iteration of something else. So what we do nowadays when we're trying to improve the performance or any characteristic of a wingsuit is we either identify a problem that it has, something that we want to improve, or a characteristic that it lacks, something that it needs to have. And we try and prototype only changing one thing at a time. Sometimes that's hard to do because you have multiple ideas and prototypes are expensive and they take time to build. And that's all, you know, the timeline is tricky because when you think about how much a prototype costs and how many prototypes you can do in a certain amount of time, you know, a lengthy R&D process is longer than the product cycle itself. So it takes a lot of work. So we try to do one thing at a time and then we will just compare the previous version with the new version if we can side by side with pilots of similar weight and ability and figure out whether it's an improvement or not. And a lot of the time it's not. And we learn just as much from not improvements as we do from actual improvements, even though actual improvements obviously are way more fun to discover. But that probably doesn't answer your question because it's, it's sort of a broad topic, but um, well, well, maybe specifically you could tell us, how often are you jumping new prototypes? Are are you, is this something that's an ongoing process? Is it something that's like every once in a while or it's is constant. it, I mean, we, we've got how many constant. suits in our range? Some like nine, 10, 12, I don't know, something somewhere around 10 wingsuits in our range. Right. And we try to refresh them every couple of years. Some suits stick around for three or four years. Some suits are two. Um, and so that means that there's always five or six prototypes floating around or not five or six prototypes, but five or six versions of suits that are being worked on for their next version, right? So as soon as the Freak 4 is out, I'm jumping prototypes of the Freak 5, for example. And it's sort of endless. You know, a suit's never done. Like you never get to the point where you're like, ah, it's perfect. There's nothing I want to change. Let's sell it. That never happens. (laughs) What happens is you get to the point where you've made X number of prototypes. It's gotten to the point where you feel like it's actually pretty good. It's a measurable improvement on the previous version. It feels better. It flies better, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have to stop. You have to say, all right, well, if we don't stop the prototyping now, we're not going to be able to sell it by, you know, this part of the season, which means people won't be getting them until that part of the season, which means that it's not ideal. So it's not like nothing's ever done. And then realistically, when you think about it, we halt prototyping, make it a product, and then the next prototype of that same strain is the first prototype of the following version, if that makes sense. Yeah. I've got a specific one about leading edge design. I think uh, your company has made some pretty like great leaps when it comes to just the uh, the materials used. And I've seen those change over the years quite a bit from neoprene to Dacron to vinyl. Uh, can you talk to us about the process uh, by which you landed on the current material that you're using? Well, the very first suits we made had flexible leading edge, right? Like the aura, if you remember, was all like this. It was a, it's not neoprene exactly, but it was like a type of neoprene with a slick outer coating, right? And the flexibility was just for comfort. It was so that we could reach up and grab our brakes during deployment time. And it functioned well enough for flying, but it was obviously not the best aerodynamic solution. So, you know, when ACEs came around and we started focusing a little bit more on that stuff, you know, we started building stiffer and, you know, more aerodynamic leading edges that were slightly less comfortable. Um, but the comfort was enough. Right. And so we've continued in that vein. And over the past few years, you know, basically there's no secrets like to aerodynamics. It's just making it smoother, 
making it more uniform, making it adhere as closely as possible to the profile that you're intending to use. Um, and at the speeds we fly, the way Fred put it to me a long time ago, he's like, every wrinkle is a canyon, you know, like the faster you go, the more important little wrinkles and bumps and deformities are, the more carefully you have to look at making things smooth. So yeah, slicker, smoother, less wrinkles, more uniform, more like the profile that we intend it to inflate to for each model. I think when, when you're talking about uh, comfort and speed and smoothness, I think that some of us as consumers forget like there's no uh, aeronautical free lunch when it comes to building a wing. Like you want it more comfortable, there's going to be more wrinkles. When it's going to be faster, it's going to be a little bit less comfortable. Uh, do you, in your mind, think about that, like uh, rating a suit, like almost like a video game character, you know, like he's got X amount of points and you can only add them so many in, in each direction. Uh, you're, you're prioritizing those attributes depending on what it's for. And I think now Squirrel is doing that more than ever because how many suits do you have in your range? There's, it's become so increasingly specific that, uh, I guess what I what my question is is that uh, are you seeing room for more and more suits because you want to be more and more specific to what people need and want for their particular activity? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, right? So first of all, the concept of there no of there being no free lunch in aerodynamics is mostly true, but there are some things that you can do that decrease drag without increasing the difficulty or making the suit less comfortable to fly. Right, and we're always looking for those free performance upgrades. Right, that's like a cheeky way to put it. Um, and wrinkles aren't always necessarily associated with comfort. More often, they're associated with bad design or bad fit. So we're constantly trying to clean those wrinkles up, make the suits fit better, make them slicker on the outside, in ways that don't reduce comfort. Um, an example, the best example of the inverse relationship between comfort and performance is surface area, right? The bigger you make a suit, the more potential you have for glide performance, right? Because there's just more lifting surface, as long as you're putting the surface area into the right spot, right? We'll just assume that's the case. But every square centimeter of surface area you add is another square centimeter of surface area you have to wrestle with in the event that you lose control of the wingsuit. So you can't cheat surface area. That's like one of the most basic and important design tenets is that we want to get as much performance as we can from the smallest amount of surface area. We're always trying to squeeze as much as we can without making a suit bigger. Um, and you can see that in some of our range. If you, if you look at the Freak, for example, some of the suits that are meant to compete with the Freak are larger in surface area, even though they're supposed to be in the same category. And that's intentional on our part. I don't know if it's intentional on the part of other brands, but we want to get as much as we can out of the smallest amount of surface. That's the best example of no free lunch, in my opinion. Um, and the reason, and that's part of the reason that we have a lot of suits in our range, especially in the upper ends of it, right? Like, why do we have a glider and a Corvid and an Aura? You know, that's the best example that I can think of. Um, and the glider exists because for the absolute best glide performance, you really do want the absolute biggest suit, at least for base jumping. That translates for us. But that has an inherent reduction in comfort and maneuverability. So if all you care about is glide, 
we have the biggest suit in the range. If you want something that's a little bit more all around, we have something that's faster, more maneuverable, slightly less surface area, the Aura. And if you want something that is sort of the middle ground, pretty big in surface, but still relatively fast and fun to fly, we've got the Corvid. And you can really feel the difference between those three suits when you jump them. It's it's not small, right? They all kind of do the same things, but they feel very different and they're the best at their own thing. And I don't really want to have more suits in our range. It already feels crowded, especially at the top, right? And the only reason we do is because people have asked us for these things very specifically, right? The, the glider came to be only because Yuri Kuznetsov, who incidentally is so funny talking about him and then talking about this conversation because you know he was there for my very first days of base jumping in Lauterbrunnen as one of the original wingsuit base ninjas, if not the original wingsuit base ninja. He came to us last year and asked for the suit that glides the best. It's like, hey, I have this other suit that I've been using. It's awesome. There's nothing else better. This company stopped making it. I need something that's at least this good, if not better. And nothing comes close. And I was like, hey, try the Aura. He's like, it's not good enough. The Aura doesn't do what I want it to do. Hmm. I was like, try the CR Plus. He's like, the CR Plus doesn't do what I want it to do. I was like, well, shit, try this. And we made him something special. He was like, that's interesting. And it took us a while. It took us a year of sending him some pretty random and sometimes scary big prototypes to get to where we are. But he's happy now. Um, and I think we did something. It's pretty cool. The glider is, is a very useful tool for a specific purpose. So, you know, we were never, we didn't set out to sell a bunch of those when we started designing it. We set out to make Yuri happy and to see if we could sort of, you know, meet his challenge. I've got a question about pushing the technology forward. Um, you have, you know, exemplified it just in this conversation that you've got so many different suits that allow people to get into uh, short starts and high glides and fast, you know, flights. And certainly you've allowed people to access terrain um, and get into more dangerous environments than ever before. And my question is, do you feel any added responsibility for uh, allowing people, giving them the agency to add that kind of danger? I don't know. I feel main resp mainly responsible for making suits that are easier to fly. And that comes back to judgment, right? What you do with a wingsuit that's easier to fly and has more performance is your personal decision. And I don't criticize or fault people for using that margin to do something more difficult or to have, you know, from their perspective, more fun with the suit. So yeah, it, it's, that's not what I would lose sleep over at all. For sure. It's, you know, base jumping is very personal. The people that get, into, that get into it understand how risky it is. You can't look at base jumping and not understand on a deep, deep level that you're probably going to die if you do it enough. So, yeah, I don't feel bad about making suits that are easier to fly and, and fly better. Okay, because there's a couple of things I want to, like, delve into that seem to be, like, philosophical hallmarks of our community. One of them is that in order to, quote, unquote, keep people safe, which I, I hate that term, but in order to do that, a lot of people's strategy is to be the gatekeeper by not giving information, by not allowing people uh, access to the terrain that they know how to get to. Uh, and it seems like you are completely in the opposite direction of that. Uh, can you uh, kind of speak to that philosophy? Well, I think there, there's a few things there. There's like withholding sites, there's withholding information, there's withholding education, and those are all kind of separate. But 
I honestly think that the reason a lot of people, a lot of influential people don't put more effort into educating the public is not because they feel like they're doing the public a favor or that they're acting as gatekeepers. It comes from a lack of caring and a lack of enthusiasm for helping people, honestly. Like the process of shrugging your shoulders and saying, oh, base is dangerous. You can't tell anybody anything because the people that will listen to you are going to find the information anyways. And the people that won't listen to you aren't going to listen to your information. So, you know, people go in base jumping. So fuck it. We're not going to put any effort into education. That's fucking bullshit. In my opinion, that's not how we roll. We definitely have the opposite approach. And the approach that I've always wanted to take is that people have more fun and are safer with more information. And of course, there's always going to be people who aren't interested in reading your article. There's always going to be people who you can't tell anything to. Those people exist. But we're not necessarily making the effort for them. We are making the effort for the people who do want to learn, who do want to use the information to have more fun and to have a better, safer, longer career, whatever it is. So in my opinion, it's worth it. It's always worth putting the effort into educating people. It's always worth putting the effort into sharing things. And we do as much as we can. It's a it's a lot of effort. It's hard. You know, it's it's not a small thing to put together vetted information to write an article or a book or a video or whatever it is. But I think it's important. And I strongly disagree with the concept that uh, it doesn't matter and there's no reason to do it. I think you've almost already answered my question here. But I mean, this is a great segue into talking about your efforts behind the Great Book of Base because that was a lot of effort. And that must have taken an enormous amount of motivation to sit down and write that book. And uh, your motivation behind that, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, You know, back then, the forum, the base forum, was the only source of information for base jumpers, pretty much. That was it. It was one place, and that place was mostly fucking garbage. There were definitely some great posts. There was really good information shared occasionally, but I think it was 95% dumpster fire. Um, And while I did enjoy at times back then, you know, engaging with it a little bit, um, (laughs) because there was some banter, there was some banter and I did get a little bit of entertainment out of that but you know i've changed (laughs) Um, at the same time back then uh it i was pretty obviously just shit it was garbage and you could see the need the need was so apparent people really did need information you know there were a couple courses but it was mostly mentorship and mentors aren't there with you all the time to answer all of your questions they're not going to be on every jump and you know there was these isolated cells of mentorship in different parts of the country, the world. And there was no one source. Well, I mean, the forum was the source, but it was so fragmented and so mostly bullshit that the my book was just a direct answer to that, right? I was like, people need a better source of information. And yeah, I mean, why I spent a year plus of my life writing it, um, I don't know, it felt like something that needed to happen and I, I can't even fully explain it, but I mean, I knew it wasn't going to make a bunch of money. I knew that it wasn't going to make me famous because it's the world's smallest sport and who cares anyways, who writes what. But yeah, I felt like uh, it was something that would help, something there was, there was a clear need for. And in hindsight, I'm glad I did. I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of the effort. 
Okay, I've got, uh, it's going to sound like an odd question, but I, I, I assure you that I ask it in all seriousness because it's one that um, people ask me and I don't have a good answer for it. Um, why do you care? Seriously, like. About what? About helping the community like you like you're just outlining, like, why do you like, you know, whenever somebody really speaks, uh, speaks up, um, there's always somebody that comes back and says like, Oh, well, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to be the man. Why are you trying to educate these people? Why do you even care? You know, why don't you just sit down and do the thing? You know, I don't know. Why, why do you, why do people not care? How could somebody not care? How can you love base jumping and not care about it? I, and I wouldn't say it like, I don't have like this overriding, sky fam community love thing it's it's more just that this is a beautiful and awesome sport i don't feel like it could be too crowded i want as many people as possible to experience it if again like i said earlier they feel like they must and i want it to be you know as awesome as possible what do you say to people um that are kind of haters and say that like the only reason that you put out education is uh, to improve your business well, I mean, the base book predated Squirrel by many years, and I would say that the two are totally unrelated. But yeah, people can say whatever they want to say. I, I stopped caring a while back. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you you said something just before we asked this question, and it, you, you just brushed over it really nonchalantly too. And you said that base jumping, if you do it long enough, will kill you. And I think that that's like a, a pretty strong philosophical approach to our activity. And I don't think that everybody we've had on here as a guest agrees with you. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about that. And like, maybe you could uh, clarify exactly what you mean by that. I mean, you could, you could call it philosophy or you could call it statistics. Um, base jumping is very unforgiving of error. Humans are error prone come to your own conclusions. You know, I think that a lot of base jumpers fool themselves in a variety of ways, chief among which is thinking that they're very good at managing risk. They're very risk averse, that they can handle risk and they're good at risk. If you were that risk averse, you wouldn't have started base jumping in the first place. You're not risk averse if you base jump. You're fucking risk obsessed. <laughs> you're risk, you're attracted by risk. It's something that you know, risk pulled you towards, yeah, you're, yeah, you, you tolerate it, but you want it. You know, it's, it's like when a base jumper says that they don't do drama. It's like, you don't do drama. Fucking base jumping is the most dramatic sport in the world. Like what's more dramatic than death and dismemberment? Base jumpers are all drama queens, <laughs> pretty much without <laughs> exception. Right. And they're all attracted to risk. That's, that's fucking why we do it because the risk is exciting. The challenge is gratifying and the process of living through it is fulfilling. So, yeah, I mean, now I've kind of forgotten your original question, but. I just uh, asked you to clarify uh, your philosophy behind this idea. Oh yeah, why it's going to kill you. Yeah, but it might you not. said it's not so much a philosophy, but a statistics, that, that, which is funny too, because I know you from previous conversations don't put a lot of weight into base jumping statistics because our numbers aren't super accurate. Wouldn't you agree? Well, yeah, I mean, it depends what we're talking about. I, I think that it's too small of a sample size to draw strong conclusions about almost anything, but certainly, you know, statistics and base jumping range from, you know, 
slightly controlled or you know carefully designed studies to just anecdote and anecdotes have always been the statistics of base right for the most part like the things we do with our equipment the ways we practice are all driven by personal anecdote you know you know i felt this i saw that this killed that person etc so it's hard to say really how safe or how dangerous the sport is statistically Shrag obviously has probably the best um, fatality slash injury stash slash jump numbers statistics. Um, and I'm not sure how much that tells us, but the bottom line for me is that it is so unforgiving of error. It doesn't take a very large mistake or a long series of mistakes to end up dead. And everybody makes mistakes. None of us are, you know, as calculated as we like to tell other people in interviews or like other people to think. So, yeah, I think that the only way to practice it honestly is to accept that um, you, you can't really be perfect every time for your entire life. It's just not going to happen. So what does that mean? You know, what does that mean to how many times you want to base jump? What does that mean for how long you want to practice it? And under what circumstances as, as you age and your, your family changes and all those things, you know, you just have to constantly evaluate yourself and whether or not it's worth it. So what do you say to people that want to get into the uh, sport and do it safely, who, uh, you know, feel like they are, um, you know, acting devoid of risk? I I don't feel like I have any special or unique advice. It's the same shit that every single other person that's been doing any sport for a while will tell you take it slow, don't be in a hurry, listen to your mentors, learn as much as you can, exercise good judgment, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I, I wish I had some golden nugget to share with you, but you know, for me, I think that the single most important thing, if I were to try and isolate something, would be judgment. It's not how good you are. It's not how badass of an athlete you are. It's not how in-depth your FJC was. It's whether or not you can exercise good judgment and you need information to do that, right? You can't exercise good judgment if you don't recognize the risks that you're assessing. So that's why education is so important. And that's why education needs to happen regardless of whether people are going to listen because nobody can exercise good judgment unless they have the, the tools. Blank. I'm interested in hearing how you answer that question. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. I'm kind of interested to dive into it with Matt a little bit too, because, uh, what he seems to have said after answering your question about people dying in the sport is that it just literally can't be done safely. And now like on the fall, <laughs> well, obviously it's done. People do it and people do it for most of their lives. They do it for thousands of times, blah, blah, blah. But I'm not saying it can't be done safely. That's, that is definitely not the same thing. Base jumping is a sport that can be practiced over a long period of time without death or serious injury. I myself, an example of that, I've never been to the hospital because of base jumping, right? I've never been injured. So, you know, I put my hand down once a Brento and, and bled a little bit from the palm, no big deal. So obviously you can get out alive, but eventually you either quit or you die, right? And I don't think it's healthy to look at it with the idea that I'm going to fucking nail this for my entire life and I can jump as many times as I want to without worrying about dying. You know, 
it's probably also not healthy to say that I'm probably going to die on this next base jump. You know, there's somewhere in between those two outlooks. That's the most healthy, in my opinion. Well, I mean, try this on for respect. size. All right, because Laurent was curious how I feel about it. And the way I feel about it is that safety as a word has no place in the sport at all. And that like what you're describing is uh, sustainable jumping, which I can agree with. Like you can jump sustainably and never be injured. Uh, though safety is a, a matter of judging the amount of danger that is present and the possibility for negative consequence and no single jump ever like is in my opinion safe. And I get shit for this all the time when I, when I like admit that like I came to the sport to be dangerous, you know, because it is inherently dangerous. And so if you didn't come to the sport to get dangerous, then like, from my point of view, I don't know the fuck you're doing. Yeah, a lot of this is just the vocabulary we decide to apply to it, right? But I 100% agree with you that it's not a safe sport. Anybody who says it's a safe sport, don't worry, mom, dad, it's a safe sport. They're they're in denial. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that we've what we're learning about and what you're what you just said there, Matt, is that uh, you know things like fear, things like safety, things like risk are have such an enormous subjectivity to them, and the way that we're using those words uh, is it really needs deep definitions to to actually understand where each of us stand with them. Yeah, I mean, I feel you, but like you know, most dictionaries and sources agree on the definition of safety. You know devoid of risk and, uh, free of negative consequence. Right. And, uh, I've heard Matt say this, uh, you know, time and time again, because I, I do know that you're careful with your words and you say that, you know, words are ideas and that's where we start to conceptualize our actions. And so like, I don't think it's just a debate over semantics. I think that if somebody believes that they can do this sport safely, then they've just started the road of complacency, which is going to end with them dying. And I think that's something that you alluded to earlier in this conversation when you said, or maybe this was a previous conversation where you said something to the tune of, you know, why do our friends um, who checked all the right boxes die and all of our friends who have like a seemingly dangerous and radical progression into the sport end up living, you know? And no, I th- not all, you know, definitely not all, but with, there's great examples of people who do everything by the book and go in and great examples of people who are just complete fucking knuckleheads and just for some reason live forever like cockroaches, right? Like there's, there's no explaining it. And you have to attribute a great deal of that to luck and some of it to judgment, some of it to, you know, I don't know. I don't even want to say special skill because that empowers people to think that they might have it. Um, But yeah, there's, there's something that we definitely can't put our finger on. There's something random. Um, that causes people to make it or not make it. I don't know, but it's definitely not all one or all the other, right? Hmm. On the topic of intuition, I think that this applies a lot to manufacturing in a way, right? We talked about uh, in, in another conversation about the scientific approach to making alterations to parachute design. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about intuition and, and and how it plays a role in the parachute industry and making wingsuits? Intuition. Well, you make a change and you feel the change and we don't have a giant 
subset of of uh, data to formulate a, a real uh, understanding of those changes. So you're using or there's intuition behind this is better. Okay, so we do this and then that's better. When in fact we're we have a lot of missing data. So. Yeah, I, th- I think I know what you mean. Um, you know, when we're improving designs, it's usually pretty apparent when something's better or worse or the same. So when we move from one iteration to the next, we can tell what's what's happened with the suit, right? And I wouldn't necessarily call that intuition. I would call that observation and experience. Um, you know, we get emails every other week from... PhD students or, you know, grad school students or even high school students that are planning to major in aeronautics or something like that saying, you know, I want to work for Squirrel. It's amazing. Wingsuits are so cool. All you have to do to increase glide performance is, you know, increase the aspect ratio and do this, that, and the other thing. And our answer is always like, we'd love to have your help, (laughs) but will you please get some skydiving experience first so that you can feel these things and understand them and, and realize, you know, what we're limited by sitting in the plane, reaching our parachutes, flying our parachutes, you know, having safe, stable flight, all that stuff. Um, so with a bit of design knowledge, you know, understanding what you changed and with a bit of piloting knowledge, understanding how it has affected the design and what you're feeling, it's less intuition based than it is observational. And so we're feeling the stall speed reduction, right? Like this suit flares a little more and flies a little slower without stalling and therefore feels good. And so those things are real, you know, like a a couple miles an hour of reduced stall speed is a nice improvement to a suit. And when we give a performance suit, for example, to one of our test pilots, like Chris Geiler, and he does five jumps in a row on it and does five jumps in a row on a previous version or mixes them up back to back, and comes away with it, it comes away with, you know, a three or four or five second performance increase in time that could be considered pretty objective as well. So it's not so much intuition based as it is, you know, either objective analysis through instruments or side-by-side comparisons. And also just, you know, being able to feel what's happening in the suit based on a lot of personal experience. This uh, sort of segues in nicely into uh, the discussion that we had about tension knots and how much intuition is involved with uh, parachute malfunctions. And, and intuition, I mean by, you know, it's not necessarily as, as clear and there's so many different factors that are being invo- involved, uh, you know, or influenced with parachute openings. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your experience with, uh, you know, this study that you've done recently with Will and, and uh, what your objective, uh, what your observations were with that? Yeah, there are virtually an endless number of variables involved with parachute openings, and it is really complicated. Anybody that tries to say it's simple or that there are simple answers to problems <laughs> is, is not giving it enough credit. And anybody that says that all these answers exist doesn't fully understand how prevalent some of the problems are still. So yeah, the tension knot study was really interesting because we went into it with the same conventional wisdom that everybody else in parachuting has, you know, it's caused by X, Y, and Z twisted brake lines, you know, messy stows, furry lines that 
needed to be replaced, et cetera. And came away with the understanding that none of those things are, are primary causes. And some of the, like a lot of the time, none of those things are even contributing factors. So what is it? And, you know, after looking at it for three years and talking to a lot of other people in the industry, people from the very biggest brands in the sport and people from the very biggest brands in military parachuting, we, you know, basically were able to addend the conventional wisdom because it's incomplete, right? It's a lot more complicated than that. And there's other factors that are more important. So th the process doesn't involve us being able to open a parachute a thousand times inside of a laboratory with the same density, altitude, airspeed, jumper configuration, reefing, packing techniques, all that stuff. I wish it was. I wish that we could do that. I wish we could create tension knots at will, but it's just not something that is currently possible. So what you end up with is a lot of observation a lot of conversation and a lot of thought, um, which yeah, is a, a bit like intuiting issues. Well, uh, we're certainly going to get into that. And I think, um, we've agreed to do another podcast just on, uh, the attention, not study that you're uh, coming out with. Maybe, uh, you can give us just a, a little bit about, uh, that by saying like when you're planning on coming out with this study and when people can uh, take a look at it. Oh, we made the leak public uh, like a month ago. Okay. So uh, through the website? Already, I think it's already on our website, yeah. Awesome. So we'll post a link to that and uh, everyone can take a look and then we'll back it up with uh, another episode. Um, I think uh, Will Kiddo is going to join us for that one. Um, back on to our discussion with you. Yeah, that'll be great. Um, Lo and I both wanted to get into some relationship stuff with you as well. Um, I guess uh, the first part that I want to uh, start with um, is your relationship with the public, which, you know, was one of the things that we wanted to kind of, I guess, solve <laughs> on this podcast by uh, characterizing you. And my question is, like, why have you not, you know, why have you seemingly like been averse to uh, controlling your own personal narrative in our community when people say terrible things, you know, sometimes <laughs> like I just you kind of brush it off. And so your, your personal narrative in the community has like, it's all over the map, man, from, you know, this person is, you know, an incredible, uh, you know, asset to the yeah, hero and villain for sure. Yeah. To like, this person yeah. is a villain Naturally. <laughs> and a ruthless capitalist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot to talk about, but why aren't I constantly engaged with Facebook posts and Facebook comments and interacting with people online and sort of, you know, giving everybody a clear impression of who I am and what I care about and blah, blah, blah. It's because it's just, I'd rather spend my time doing other things, first of all. And then why aren't I bothered by some people talking shit? That also has a list of complicated answers, but really we should, we should try and understand who does that and why, you know, and what reasons they might have for it. Well, please expand because I know that Squirrel has, uh, both you personally and Squirrel as a company have been faced with quite a, a barrage of shit talk as you're coming up in the game. Um, so, well, I mean, we remember we you even have to go to how court we started about this. Oh, that was, that's a hilarious story. 
Oh my God. It's so funny. But all right. So first, <laughs> first, remember we were talking about the Kalugo and the aura in the early days of the company and how we really only released one wingsuit at first, which was targeted at experienced wingsuit base jumpers, right? Yeah. So what does it take to be an experienced wingsuit base jumper? Well, you got to have a few skydives. You got to have some time in a wingsuit. You got to have some time base jumping and you can't spend that much time in the sport and not form allegiances and brand loyalties, or at least a customer relationship with other manufacturers of base and wingsuit gear, right? You have to. And the sport's small enough to where if you're a good wingsuit base jumping pilot or a good wingsuit pilot or whatever, then you're going to have some type of relationship with the person that's making your gear. It happens naturally. And also it happens as a result of an expectation on the customer's part. Like this sport's so small, I get to know. I'm entitled to know who's making my shit, right? Which means that when we release the Kalugo and then the Aura, and that part of the market was who the suit was aimed at, it inevitably resulted in a bunch of people leaving other brands to come to Squirrel. It's not something we planned. We didn't think about that. It wasn't like like the the intent wasn't to steal customers from other brands. The intent was to make a wingsuit that we wanted to jump and that our friends might also want to jump. And we totally didn't understand what an existential threat that would be to the other brands in the sport, right? Like it didn't, didn't even register how hurtful that might be. And I kind of sort of understand it now. Our brand has never experienced an exodus away from us. I hope we never do, but we, you know, we've, you know, people have left our brand to go to other brands and it hurts even one customer leaving to go somewhere else. If it's a, somebody you care about and somebody you've had a relationship is with is kind of a bummer. You know, that sucks. You'd rather see them stay. So when I think back to 2012, 13, 14, 15, those first few years, and I think about how many people and how good they were, you know, the level of pilot that was leaving other brands to come to us now, later, older, wiser, you know, I, I can be a little bit more empathetic, you know, and that's like, shit, that would have been fucking hard. Not only would it, would it, not only would it have been hard, really hard. It would have felt like, you know, like I said, it's existential. Like it's, it's do or die. Like there's so many people leaving our brand right now for this other company that we could really be fucked. This is bad. And even if it isn't an actual threat to the future of your company, it's really hurtful. It's a bummer because we have a lot of it's a small enough sport where we, ha- we do have personal relationships with all of our customers and it's the same for other brands. So obviously that led to hurt feelings, not our feelings. Our feelings were the result of gaining a bunch of cool customers and growing our company. Other people's feelings were exactly the opposite. How certain people decided to deal with those hurt feelings is up to them, but there's definitely been a trickle down effect from how those hurt feelings were expressed to everybody lower down that chain of command, right? The representatives of those other brands, the longtime faithful customers of those other brands, etc. Yeah. And that whole vibe from other brands is different from ours, you know, partly because we started off as the underdog and we felt like our vibe was defensive and, you know, we're new. So of course, whatever. It gets complicated, but basically it's not that difficult to understand why some people at the top of other brands would really resent us. If you look at it in that context, every single customer 
that we had for the first several years of our existence came from a different brand or depending on your viewpoint was stolen. Hmm. That, like I said, hurt feelings. It's, it's interesting to look at, um, how the sport was affected by that kind of shit talk. And, um, you know, you've told me time and again that like, I maybe look at base jumping a little too idealistically, but, you know, I always, you know, imagine that since the sport is do or die, like, it's not just like companies going and, you know, folding and succeeding, but it's, you know, people not making it, you know, back from Europe year in, year out, uh, that, you know, we would hold a higher standard to how we would, um, you know, interact with one another. And I could see the effect of all of this shit talk, you know, in the, two thousand teens as as people just started, you know, saying random nonsense and terrible advice based on them wanting to, you know, throw uh the company under the bus. And, you know, I think this all came to a head uh for me when you threw down this this incredibly uh, you know, well timed gauntlet to a, a notable shit talker and said, look, like what you're saying is nonsense. And if you really feel that way, then grab your suit and follow us around Europe. And if you don't die, I will give you a, a like, it was like $10,000 cash prize. I think it was a thousand, thousand bucks. <laughs> right. And if so you don't die, right. Like Amazing. that's, it's relevant because like, you know, like you also said to me, I, I think this was another piece of advice that I really took to heart was that, um, you know, 10 awesome pieces of advice and one terrible piece of advice will get you dead. And so like with that in mind, like all the shit talk that has no basis in fact that, you know, leads people to thinking that they are doing something that's sustainable when really they're just like taking a party line ends up getting people killed. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think that I could draw a line between, you know, shit talking and fatalities. I don't, I don't see it, but um, there's definitely a lot of drama. There's a lot of personal relationships and there's a lot of politics that aren't because of base jumping. It's just because of human nature. You know, like base jumping is a world with tribes inside of it. Base jumping itself is not a tribe, you know? Yeah. <laughs> We're not one base jumping family. Base jumping is a universe or a world or a community that tribes and families exist within. So obviously there's going to be schisms and splits and rivalries and politics and all that stuff. That's just the way it works. I think the stamp collecting is the same thing, you know, in the stamp collecting universe, there's going to be tribes and there's going to be allegiances. There's going to be infighting and all that stuff. It's not like all stamp collectors are friends and it, I don't think it's particular to base at all. It's just the way humans work. So, you know, people have things to lose. People have things to gain people coalesce around special in-group knowledge, which is also shit talking and gossip. And that's how human relationships are formed. So I don't really fault people for that. And it used to bother me a lot more. Like what you're referring to that, you know, thousand dollar thing was, that was almost 10 years ago now. I think that was in 2013 before I really like, you know, decided that social media was a complete waste of time. Um, <laughs> and that was one of the reasons that I did actually. <laughs> Maybe our last uh, point on shit talking, please tell the story uh, of uh, the shit talker that paid a price. Yeah. Oh, man. So, <laughs> um, well, a few years ago, there was this, uh, so 
like I stopped looking at Facebook and scrolling through my newsfeed a long time ago. You know, like we use Facebook to look at customer photos to see if their measurements are realistic, to check up on things. And, you know, inevitably people still send messages through there. So I check my inbox, you know, once a week or so. But, you know, when stuff like super hardcore anti-squirrel shit shows up on Facebook, people love to send us screenshots. You know, they're like, oh my God, have you seen this? And a few years ago, there was like this memes page and I kept getting screenshots from people like, dude, have you seen this? This shit's fucking gnarly. Like, look, look how rude and awful this is. And, you know, the, the first few came in and I was like, ah, you know, whatever, high road, fucking ignore it. It's just, it's bored kids. It's, you know, tribal stuff. They're, you know, doing things that titillate the other members of their tribe and trying to, you know, look good to their, the people above them, they respect, whatever, just leave it at that. But some of this stuff was really like kind of deeply unfair, you know, like just super rude, super personal, or, you know, also rude and unfair against our customers. And, uh, you know, so I looked into it a little bit and I found out who was kind of running this one page or group or whatever and figured out what country they lived in and what part of that country. And I was like, all right, well, this really is pretty unfair and maybe it's worth looking into. And so, you know, one day just sort of on a whim, I sent an email to like, you know, 10 attorneys in this, in this country saying, you know, like, here's what's happening. Here's some screenshots of what it is. And I expected to maybe get one email back, you know, like maybe out of the 10 attorneys I emailed, maybe one would reply. And like the next day I had 10 replies and they were all the same. Every single one said, wow, this is a very cut and dry example of defamation. It's a serious case. This shit's bad. You know, like I'm paraphrasing, but they were like taken aback by, by how terrible these things were. And they're like, you not only have a case against you, you know, a case for defamation against you personally, but also against your company. And we would love to help you with this. And that was pretty surprising. I was like, whoa, all right, <laughs> holy shit. And what they added was, by the way, in our country, defamation is not a civil issue. It's a criminal issue. And I was like, oh, geez, that's, that's fucking gnarly. All right. So we picked, uh, you know, the attorney that seemed nicest and most capable. And, uh, you know, they just went to work. They went through all the posts and, <laughs> you know, sort of laid out why these things were untrue and unfair because in order for it to be defamation, it has to be provably false. And the person who's making the claims has to know that the claims are false. And they submitted it to a judge and a local prosecutor who clearly agreed with all of the points of the case that the attorney put together. And the result was, you know, again, not something we planned or asked for at all, but just the way it played out was, uh, you know, the police, banged on this kid's door <laughs> in the pre-dawn hours <laughs> one day, you know, like literally before dawn and confiscated his computer and his phone and hauled him into the police station for questioning. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Amazing. He's like oh, in the man. process of Photoshopping a dick on your face. And yeah, exactly. Then, something like that. <laughs> the, the cops kick in the door. door. <laughs> He's been up all night. It's four in the morning. Great. <laughs> Oh man, that's the story that like you you fucking hope to read about, you know, after getting like slammed by randos on the internet, these trolls, like somebody actually goes and ferrets out a troll. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like literally the police and the state prosecutor. It was pretty fucking funny. 
and you know obviously he you know broke down immediately and cried and said he was so sorry and blah 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 and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> complained that now he's uh, totally unfair and now i'm gonna have a criminal record and and you know so obviously we didn't press criminal charges there was no reason to go that hard and that was never our intent you know it was nice to be proven right it was nice that a judge ruled in our favor and said this shit is obviously untrue based on you know an objective analysis of the history of the company everything the company's done they're standing in the sport etc cetera, etc cetera. these claims are all complete bullshit and they were made for you know not very nice reasons you know there's obviously nothing constructive and obviously this was meant to do harm and in the end, like I said, we did not press criminal charges. That was not what we wanted to do, and it was never the point. Um, but we did get our attorney fees back. I'll tell you that. Nice. And our attorney was not cheap. Well, uh, jump shifting nice. from some of the uh, negative cultural things that we've noticed, uh, we want to end on a positive cultural note and dive into uh, Squirrel as a tribe and uh, the vibe that you guys have created over there, and specifically what we want to know is what you're looking for in athletes that want to be a part of the team. Yeah. Well, like I said, there's, you know, there's a trickle down vibe that comes from the top of other certain brands. Right. And that sort of permeates the culture of the company and, you know, a lot of the way that their representatives express themselves, not the people themselves, because, you know, there's, I don't really believe that for the most part, there's like good people and bad people, right? We're all both. We all do good and bad things. And anybody who says that only bad people do bad things and only good people do good things is just being a little bit obtuse. But, you know, with the exception of random psychopaths and beautifully pure and kind people, which are on the far ends of the spectrum, most of us fall in the middle. So, you know, having experienced the trickle down effect of negative vibes and, you know, useless criticism and shit talking, essentially, um, a long time ago, we decided as a company to try and just ignore that stuff, take the high road and make niceness a priority. So when we're searching for people to join our team or to be a part of our tribe, as you put it, which is how I put it, which I think is as accurate as you can possibly be, because that's how humans align themselves or have at least over the past 25,000 years. We're looking for people that are nice, right? Attitude's more important than skill. Skill obviously is super important. Experience is important. Judgments is important, but attitude's kind of the number one thing. We'd rather have the person who is the rare person, I should add, who's willing to go out of their way to help a newer jumper, who cares about educating others, who is nice to people and generally a positive influence on the sport. And somebody who's just good, you know, somebody who helps out. And that is sort of hard to categorize. It's hard to put your finger on. Um, but you can feel it, you know, you know it when it's there. So we're trying as much as we can to kind of be the love team, to pick people who don't talk shit online, to pick people who are helping out others and sort of being that positive influence. Nice. And obviously there's a lot more to it, you know, like the, the list of reasons to support somebody or not support somebody is, is long and complicated. There was a recent article in skydivemag, skydivemag.com that uh, had input from a bunch of other brands as well that I thought was really good. You know, it, they outlined really clearly what most brands expect from people and how most people fall short. Nobody gets sponsored for just being themselves and nobody deserves to be sponsored for just being rad 
right? There's a lot more to it and it has to be a mutually beneficial relationship in order for it to last or to even begin. Matt, we could go on and on uh, talking to you for hours about this stuff. Uh want to thank you so much for your time and uh, we're going to meet again for our discussion on tension knots with Will soon. Awesome. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode. If you have any comments about what you've heard on the podcast or any topic suggestions for future episodes, please hit us up. Big shout out to Mark Stockwell, our sound engineer and co-producer for helping us on this project. Catch you next time and see you all on the exit point. 